Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Steve Killaby. Uh, I'm the executive chairman and founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace. I cultivate my soul mainly through a daily meditational practice, and it's about two hours. Today we are joined by Steve Killalay, the founder of the internationally renowned global think tank, the Institute for Economics and Peace, or IEP. In 2013, Steve's funding of the IEP was recognized as one of the 50 most impactful philanthropic gifts in Australia's history by a coalition of Australian foundations. He has been recognized as one of the world's 100 most influential people on reducing armed violence. In acknowledgement of Steve's deep commitment to peace, he has twice been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Steve's full bio is available on our podcast website. Steve, welcome. We're so thrilled to have you here. We want to get started with our discussion today by asking you to tell us a story from your childhood that was instrumental in shaping your earliest views of what matters. It's hard actually to come up with one or two stories which are actually instrumental from the early childhood in shaping me. But when I think about it and go back, I think right from the early days there's this sense of adventure. I can remember sort of getting up in the morning and I'd get up before the rest of the family. And then in those days we had a milkman used to come round and deliver the milk. So I'd be out at 5am on my scooter following him around the neighbourhood while he delivered the milk, talking to him. I've got memories of sort of crawling up drain pipes, exploring what's up drain pipes and creeks and sort of going out in the bush. And like I lived lived in Sydney, which is a city, but there was still quite a bit of bush around and just heading out into the bush and exploring the bush. So I think now, to look at my life, it's been full of adventure. I've just had a marvellous life. It's, it's really quite often got to pinch myself to realise that I'm actually awake. A lot of it is, I think, it's been fueled by adventure. And the adventure, in many ways, has shaped the person I am at the moment, particularly as I sort of got out into some of the more remote and wilder parts of the world. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing these stories. I can picture how adventurous you were as a child, exploring the wild parts of the world around you. Steve, I'm wondering, is there a moment in your life that helped you realize what your purpose is? Well, there's a whole range of them. And like, look back quite often, I look back on this, I think it just shows how inside us in our intuition, we really do understand what our path in life is. So I actually left school fairly early, about 16. And that was mainly to go off and surf. I spent a lot of time surfing down the coast of Australia and then off shot off overseas and did that. I got to about 25 and then thought, well, I really need to now start to do something with my life. What will I do? And I had six months pondering this, six months. 
And three different options came up. One was to go and take people on adventure travel trips around the world. And that'd be like a whitewater rafting down the Zambezi River. Uh, yours. It'd be things like uh, you're taking people on trips uh, up through the uh, Himalayas and things like that. But I thought, well, that's going to be hard to do once I get over 35. I'll be too old for it. And so I gave it away. But in retrospect, I just would have created a business around it. <laughs> so another one was to uh, actually become involved in the, uh, some form of social work, okay? And that it always appealed to me to sort of help people in some shape, way or form. Put that one aside because I didn't think there was quite enough money in it for a good lifestyle. And the third one, which at that stage was totally intuitive, was to go and do computer programming. So what happened was I went off and did the computer programming. Because in those days, I hadn't even seen a computer at that stage because at that stage, getting access to a cheap computer was $5 million. So I just went off, did an aptitude test for it, was really good at it, and that went on. But when I stand here and look back now through the Family Foundation, I can see I've done a massive amount of good in the social field and social work, and my life's just been uh, one huge adventure. And so I've got to a lot of these wilder places in the world every year at some point. And so I can look back now and say it's just that it was a whole circle. All of it came about. Oh, yes. I can see how your sense of adventure and your natural skills for computing and a desire to help people has shaped your life's journey. Thanks so much for sharing. So then I set up the first company and it ended up publicly listed, eventually ended up publicly listed on NASDAQ. So I made quite a bit of money out of it. And so at the ripe old age of the 37, I decided to retire and sort of I was doing a lot of surfing at that stage. And sort of then when the surf was flat, there was this beach I'd go to in Sydney, which is pretty long. And I'd walk from one end of it to the other and that'd take about three quarters of an hour, an hour. And I noticed as I'm doing this, I've just got all this positive energy building up into me. It's almost breaking out. And then I thought, well, I'll create another company and I'll take uh, half the money proceeds which I make from that and use it to create a foundation to work with the poorest of the poor. And it was almost a sort of a spiritual, it was quite spiritual in a way. And so I went off and did that. And like, it was so personal, this, I didn't actually even tell anyone, including my wife, Till a decade after I'd actually established the company and I could see it was going to be successful. So now I talk about it quite freely and have for a long while, but I just felt it was so deep and personal. It was something which I just needed to hold to myself. And I think quite often in life, the things which are sort of deeply spiritual, we hold within us. I think quite often is the more you talk about it and externalise it, you're now moving it into a cognitive space, which means you're moving away from a lot of those deep, intuitive parts about our psyche, which are very, very hard to reach. Yes, that's so true. And that's fascinating. So you didn't share with anyone, not even your wife, for 10 years, this realisation that you wanted to set up your next business in order to do good. Yeah, in a way, and look, I've got a very close relationship with my wife, and we share almost everything, okay? But that was one thing. Yeah, so interesting, yeah, and it's so true that how we keep the deepest spirituality inside us oftentimes. You mentioned earlier that you've had a 40-year, maybe 40-year-plus meditation practice. What would you say about how your personal practices connect 
to the work you do in the world? Oh, I think it's very, very hard to actually separate the two. So for me, sort of, I do a lot of Buddhist practices, to be quite frank. So a lot of that's really sort of getting to a stillness of mind and it's separating a, the self from the emotion and thoughts. So I don't consciously try and connect the two. Rather, it's an inner impulse which drives and directs me. That's really the best way of putting it. Because I do believe that sort of there's this separation between that, the self and our thoughts and emotions. And a lot of the time, the power of our spiritual, I guess our spiritual cognition comes from being able to recognize that separation. Because all too often we think we are our thoughts and our emotions, but we're not. They're just chemical reactions going on within our body. Oh, yes, I agree. This is an important practice of self-awareness, recognizing that the self is separate from our thoughts and emotions. I want to build on this a bit more. How would you describe the relationship between our own inner transformation and the potential for societal transformation? When I was reading your book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, you write, peace is the single most important factor in enabling people to reach their full potential. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What role does peace play in these transformations? Well, I think it's really quite complicated, and I think you can come at it from many different directions. So one is the society, okay? So the society we live in needs to be structured in such a way that people have the ability to achieve their full potential. And so I guess the first fundamental right of all human beings is to be able to live in a peaceful society. Because let's face it, if you're brought up in a conflict zone, other than the rare few, most people all their time will go, will be trying to, in the fear of the conflict and trying to struggle to avoid it. And similarly, so if we start to look at the structures of society, now we take it to a more progressive level. If we're struggling just with our daily lives to have enough food to feed our family, to get so that we're worrying about getting the rent to pay for the rooms we live in or the house we live in, and you're just insecure all the time. Again, that comes back and it's hard to have spiritual development. It really is. So the first thing is that the society we live in, the way it's structured, will create an optimal environment under which human potential can flourish. And so I think the work in Peace in the Age of Chaos spends a lot of time focusing from that angle. However, on the other hand, when we look at ourselves, our own inner peace in many ways will determine the level of peace around us within the immediate environment in which we operate and also will affect other people. So at the other level, the concept of just being a peaceful person, the inner peace ourselves, is exceptionally important as well. And that's just simple things like, let's say you go into a coffee shop, be friendly to the person you're getting the coffee from. Imagine what it's standing there like and you get people coming in and abusing you every day. Smile at them. Say something pleasant. It's really simple. Like if you're getting negative emotions, like just stop and think before you act on them. And sometimes sort of the emotions will be appropriate, but quite often they're not. It's just your own physiology reacting rather than that there's deep offence there or something like that. Forgiveness, just simply, yeah, I think we live in a society now, we're becoming less and less inclined to forgive. And we can see this with the things which sometimes are 50 years old. And so the little things like that, but quite often when I look at it at a more profound level, you see that Leo Tolstoy is someone who's 
really influenced me over the years. I think he was a great man. In fact, one of the things people don't realise about him, they always think about war and peace, but he wrote the first book ever written where it was written from the eyes of a child. Up to then, plenty of books have been written on kids, but they're all written from an adult's view of a child. He wrote the first book ever through the eyes of a child, which gives an idea into his creativity. But he once wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is Within, and it's sort of based on Christ's passage, but almost impossible to read. You can get it online, but it's almost impossible to read. But in it, he makes the assumption that if we look through history, we've always been identifying evil and then fighting evil to destroy it so that good will prevail. Yet quite often in the process of fighting the evil, we become that which we are actually fighting. And we can look now through 10,000 years of history and we haven't actually really conquered evil. Therefore, we need to take a different approach and that is to look within and fight and create the kingdom of heaven within. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is, tell us what inspired the creation of the Institute for Economics and Peace. Sure. Well, look, as I mentioned earlier on, my life's just been one big adventure. So sort of the, after establishing the two IT companies, got them publicly listed and then sort of made a fair amount of money along the way. I created a, a family foundation to work for the poorest of the poor. And so it's done it's over 220 different uh, projects now in different parts of the world. Direct beneficiaries are about 3.8 million people, so it's a reasonable size. Nothing like a Bill Gates Foundation, but still reasonable size, and we've done a lot. And so we work with the poorest of the poor. So that took me into a lot of war zones, near-post war zones. And then I was actually in northeast Kivu in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world. I'm walking through there, and I start to wonder what are the most peaceful countries in the world. And was there anything from that I could take and bring into the projects we're doing? It's a bit like these fantasy questions we all have, okay? So got back to Sydney, searched the internet and couldn't find a list of the most peaceful countries. So I thought, wow, that's something which is really needed because I think having the computing background, I like math, so I think in numbers, I really do. So I then went round and sort of got one of my mates who was running the Sydney Peace Foundation at that stage, and he introduced me to a number of leading peace experts around the world. So I got off a plane, went round, spoke to them. They all thought it was a good idea. And I had a guy working for me at the time. He used to run the Economist Intelligence Unit in London. And he said, oh, they do pretty good indexes. Why don't you go over and have a chat to them? And so... Off I went and started to we, uh, look at that and sort of I worked out the philosophy and the approach I wanted for the index and then they sort of were able to sort of define what were the best metrics to use and off it went from there. But we come back, there's something really profound in this because if a simple businessman like myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations and it hasn't been done, then how much do we actually know about peace? If you can't measure something, can you truly understand it? If you can't measure it, how do you know whether your actions are even helping you or hindering you in achieving your actions? You simply don't. Then as we started to move further on, I realised that when we say we're studying peace, most of the time we're not. We're actually studying conflict. And what creates peace is very different than what you need to stop conflict. 
And then as I'm looking deeper, I can see that sort of the major challenges facing humanity today are all global in nature. Things like climate change, ever-decreasing biodiversity, full use of the fresh water on the planet, overpopulations underpinning all of that. But unless we have a world which is basically peaceful, we'll never get the levels of trust, cooperation or inclusiveness necessary to solve these problems. Therefore, for me, peace became a prerequisite for the survival of society as we know it in the 21st century. And I think that then came back and really influenced me. But if we come back and just think a minute about sort of a uh, conflict and think about peace. So if you go into most peace and conflict study courses, 90 to 95% of what they're studying will be actually conflict, okay? Now, think about health. Let's go and we look at the study of pathology. Great breakthroughs in pathology. None of us are going to die of a heart attack young. We're even curing cancers now, so that's really worthwhile. But if we wanted to know how to stay healthy, then we were not going to be studying people on the deathbed. We're going to be studying people who are healthy, active, and invigorated. And we'd find from that things like good exercise, right mental disposition, correct diet, and you're not going to study, learn any of those things through studying someone on their deathbed. And so I think the analogy there is really important. Yes, that's so true. And it's fantastic work that you're doing. Another topic that you explore in your new book, you talk about positive peace. What is that? And can you give us an example of how it is or can be applied? Sure. So positive peace is the attitude, institution and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. So to arrive at it, this is one of the really strong parts of our work. Since we've got the Global Peace Index and it measures global peacefulness, what we can do then is run statistical analysis to determine the factors most closely associated with highly peaceful societies. So the Global Peace Index uses a concept called negative peace to be able to measure peace. And that's, so that's the absence of violence or fear of violence. And that's great because it tells us all about the state of peace but it doesn't tell us how to create peace, does it? And so that's where positive peace comes in. So we've got about 50,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys. And then we run a whole range of statistical analysis, mathematical modelling against that to understand these factors which are most closely associated with peaceful societies. We then use further mathematical techniques to be able to now clump them. And it comes out into sort of eight different clumps. Now, they get called the pillars of a positive peace. And what's interesting with this, it all works as a system. It's not that one factor is causal on another. They all interact together. So to have a highly peaceful society, you really need all these factors functioning together and at a fairly high level. But the beauty of it is once we've done this, and like we can now start to turn it around into an index again, and we can start to see just the movement of societies, or particularly countries, and see, are they improving? Are they deteriorating? I and mean, quite often you'll find they're improving in some areas and deteriorating in others. And that's simply because the governments themselves don't understand the systemic nature of what they're doing. They may concentrate on a couple of areas in particular, like two which you'll find a lot of focus on is education. Okay, we all want highly educated societies and business because the two go together and through that we're going to use to sort of progress and develop our society 
but quite often what we see, if you've just got those two factors improving without others, you're more likely to end up to society slightly less peaceful. So you've got other things which come into it, like free flow of information, low levels of corruption, well-functioning government, acceptance of the rights of others, good relationships with neighbours, equitable distribution of resources, to name some of the other ones which come together. And so they're all really important. But I think what was profound, and this for me was really profound, so we started off trying to understand peace. And from that, we've ended up with positive peace. And once we turned it into index, we could now see how it affected other factors we think are important. So, for example, countries which are improving in positive peace compared to countries which are deteriorating, on average, have 2% per annum higher GDP growth rates. Now, you take that in over 20 or 30 years, and that's a substantial improvement. Countries high in positive peace have higher levels of well-being and happiness than countries which are low in positive peace. Also find that they perform better on measures of ecological performance, also better on measures of development, so they tend to have more water, tend to have larger uh, agricultural yields, less people suffering food insecurity and lower population growth. And there's a whole range of other things too, measures of inclusion, for example. So again, that brings us back to saying that positive peace in many ways describes an optimal environment for human potential to flourish, which gets us right back to where we started from in the beginning. Wonderful. That's a fantastic framework, the pillars of positive peace. Just to go a bit deeper, could you give us one specific example just to be able to envision what that looks like in practice? Sure. It gets rather complicated as you start to move into it. So one of the things we do is we ascribe to think systems thinking. So from that, all the uh, societies are on a path. They're path dependent. You could see it, see it as the cultural history of a society, for example. So really, when you start to now implement positive peace, you've really got to start to look at the society and understand it deeply and how to do it. So one of the ways you can do that is through factors which have been measured. So we can take a at a country level, we can break it down into about 400 different factors to better analyse it, to understand sort of how society functions systemically. But a lot of this can get very complicated. So what I'll do is move down maybe into a community project because that's it's a lot easier to talk about. So we can take the positive peace framework or these eight pillars, which I mentioned earlier on, and you can now apply them to just a simple development project. And I'll pick an example which came out of Rotary in Uganda, and they'd been working on a literacy project there in one of the schools in a very, very poor part of Uganda for some period of time, but without a lot of success. So we did a number of courses down in Uganda. And so what we found, one of the guys on the course was running this project, and so he decided to use the eight pillars and look at it through that as a way of being able to see what would come out of it for the development. So now when you do that, you actually come in at it from eight different lenses rather than from just your preconceived idea of what creates literacy. And that had a profound effect. So what happened is that they increased the number of kids in this school, went up from about 420s up to about the 840s. 30% of the kids were getting in the top two grades in the district. After this project, 
60% of them were getting in the top two grades. So there are things like a well-functioning government. So what they did then is made sure they included the local elders in what they were doing, okay? And then sort of also the headmaster of the school and a few others. Low levels of corruption, anything donated to the school then, they'd have stamped with it on an inventory and the inventory would get checked every three months. Free flow of information. So what they did is went on to the local radio station to talk about what they were doing, and that will come important in a minute. And they did something for each of the different areas. But the thing, too, which really made a big difference, the first was acceptance of the rights of others, because a lot of the girls weren't coming to school four days a month because they were menstruating. And sort of that was pretty demotivational then on the sort of the education. So they introduced some sanitary pads for them and put in a couple of the uh, toilet blocks just for the girls. And so that sort of went and picked up the attendances and also sort of picked up some of the scholastic performance. But the thing which made a really big difference, which you wouldn't have got at just thinking of a literacy program normally, was good relationships with neighbours. So this school is in a real poverty area and it's in a rural environment. So the kids at lunchtime would go out and raid the fruit trees in the neighbouring yards. And in these really poor places, every apple, every orange really does matter. So this was creating a lot of consternation. So what they did was they planted fruit trees in the front yard and then introduced a porridge feeding program at lunchtime. And so literally, this is a couple of cents a day per student. So we're not talking a lot of money, okay? We're not talking a lot of money. So what that did then was it actually meant that the kids in the afternoon had the nutritional value in them so that their minds would stay active and that way then they'd learn more, okay? And that increased the grades dramatically. Now, why did you end up with such a big increase in the number in the school? Simply because they got off on the radio and talked about it. And so then a lot of the parents, realising that the kids were getting a free meal at school, would send them to school. This was in this incredibly poor area, so it meant it was one less meal they had to provide for. Because the kids quite often would have to uh, go out and try, and try and find their own food. The environment was that rough. So there's an example, just a bit, a very concrete one at a very local level, and that gets a lot easier than sort of trying to analyse stuff, let's say a country level, that gets very difficult because you've got all the politics and everything else coming into it as well. I love this. So the systems perspective is something that could be used on many different levels. You have the framework of the pillars of positive peace that have been developed, and those working in the sector can use it to apply to the different projects that they're working on throughout the world. Is that right? Yes. Look, this kind of approach has been taken in a lot of different places. But maybe I'll just talk a little bit about systems because the systems are profoundly different approach. Now, we all think we understand systems and we all understand that there's oceans that have systems and then obviously, particularly with climate change now, we're all very aware of the effects of sort of the too much CO2 in the atmosphere and systems. But the very principles of systems are really poorly understood you think about it, we mainly think in terms of cause and effect. Here's an effect. What was the cause? Let's change the cause. 
and then the effect goes away. And sort of we have some success in doing that. But systems operate from many different levels. So for you've got things like uh, systems have things like let's say mutual feedback loops. So what happens is you have a have a have a core. So you have an effect. It has a cause, but the cause then comes back and tries to influence the effect. So it's dynamically changing all the time. So the idea of having a simple causal relationship doesn't work because the dynamics are changing under you. So it's simply just think about two political parties. One brings out a manifesto. The other one responds with an attack. The first party now adjusts its position differently. So it's already the situation's changed. You see that going on all the time through life. There's concepts of homostasis. So systems try and seek a steady state. And you can see that within our societies. That's what well, we've got laws, we've got rules, we've got governance. And so the society's got all these checks and balances built into it to pull it back to a steady state. And that's done through things called encoded norms. So all societies have encoded norms and they can come down to well, put the values, the shared values of a society. They can come down to the laws within society. They can come down the way our institutions react when challenged. So examples of that might be law and order. And so you've got a law and order system which is moving on. And then you get, let's say, uh, outbreaks of terrorism and their attack on the system. So you can see the system respond and a whole series of new laws get passed. You get different measures taken and you get different groups created to monitor uh, potential activity to bring it back within the homeostasis. So another example would be COVID-19. Look at the way the systems are actually struggling to be able to come back into a, a steady state again. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you've got these kind of things. Society's got a path dependency. So it comes out of their culture, comes out of their history, and it's moving along this path. If you radically try and change the past, you're more likely to bust the society than to improve it. So from a systems perspective and from our perspective, what you want to do is have many, many, many small interactions nudging the system in a particular direction. And you can use the eight pillars of positive peace and just make sure, a bit like the example in Uganda, you're nudging the system from many, many different directions to try and get to move to where you want. The other thing too is sort of the uh, societies have intent. Like you have intent, I have intent. Very important. And the other thing with systems too, they're more than the sum of their parts. And quite often when we're looking at societies, we're always trying to reduce them down to understand them better. So think of a university, for example, okay? It's got faculties and then you've got other divisions within those faculties and you get down to smaller and smaller and smaller bits to try and understand stuff. If the system is more than the sum of its parts, then you're not actually going to really be able to understand the system through doing that. So think of your consciousness. It's much more than the sum of the parts of your body. By extension, so are our societies. So there are just some of the things. And look, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yes. I had two more questions that I wanted to touch upon with you. One is around tensions, and I do feel like you're touching on that a bit with the complexity of systems and everything you've just stated, but I want to give you a chance to share what do you think are the greatest challenges the world is facing to building lasting peace right now? Well, peace 
to start with is a relative concept. It's only compared to something else. So there's no place in the world which is absolutely peaceful, nor is there any place in the world which is absolutely violent. And if we look within ourselves, we can see we've got competing emotions going on. That's a tension, okay? That's a tension. In many ways, that tension does provide the opportunity for change. That's one of the processes of change. So tension and conflict's good if it's done in a constructive way. I think that's the first thing to really get across. So quite often when we can see tension or we can see conflict, we think it's all bad, but it's not. Depends how it actually manifests itself with violent emotions and such. So I think a lot of the challenges we're facing globally, and if we're looking about trying to create a truly peaceful world, we're not going to do it anytime soon. But what I want you to think about is we can create a world which is 10% more peaceful. That's within everyone's imagination. So improvement, we need to think about in incremental ways rather than in large transformative ways. And certainly at times you do have change, okay? So we look at look at the end of the uh, Second World War and we saw the creation of the UN. And we did have a Cold War then, which ran for really 30 years after that. But we did, since then, went through a relatively uh, peaceful stage of history. So... Things improve gradually. So if we think of it today, we get in our cars and we drive downtown, we don't see heads on stakes, which we would have seen in Elizabethan England, wouldn't we? And if you went back in time, prehistoric times, 30% of people were dying. We've got to think about it gradually. Uh, we've got to think about how do we do it in the year. What are we capable of doing today, which is practical? And that's important. Mm-hmm. That's really important advice. And Steve, tell me, what's next for you that you're most excited about? We're starting to now look at sort of the, taking these concepts of systems and working out how you can actually apply it for better understanding to solve some of the real big ecological issues we've got. So if we're looking at ecological degradation, for example, it's in conflict or intimately connected. 11 of the 15 countries with the worst ecological damage are currently in conflict, and the other four are on our watch lists just to drive home. If we look at what we'd see as the 30 hotspot countries, 28 of the 30 are in the bottom half of the global peace index. And so these are all got systemic problems. So if we look at the Sahel, you've got Islamic militants there, so you've got conflict going on, you've got military operations, you've got population increases where a lot of these countries increase their population by over 100% in the next 30 years. You've got water shortages, food shortages, you've got high levels of food insecurity, high levels of malnourishment. So, and so how do you look and understand what is the systemic effects and how are these cycles working? And then how do you actually have interventions which come at it from, a, from an integrated systemic perspective? That's one of the things we're working on. Another thing which has got my interest at the moment, I want to get into further, is so when we're trying to understand the human happiness, we've got well-being measures, which are socioeconomic measures, and you find Finland at the top. And like if you've been to Finland, great country, but wouldn't say they're the happiest people in the world. Similarly, you can use surveys to try and get at it. And if you ask a Kenyan and a Russian whether they're happy, you'll get greatly different results. Also, if you're in a, let's say, a totalitarian country, people just don't give the truth. 
So I've been working with another group and looking at biometrics for being able to now measure the happiness of people or their inner peace. You can do this using voice and cameras. So I won't go into the details of it. So it's a little bit scary, but this is the uh, all this is coming. But this is the positive side of it. What we'll do then is work out a mechanism to be able to go around now because this is cheap. And go around and now be able to understand what societies in the world are probably the happiest or the ones with the most inner peace. Now, having done that and then understanding the socioeconomic conditions surrounding these people and the structure of their societies and their cultural norms, we'll have a much better idea of how we go about doing social development, particularly in the West. I love this. So it's looking at it from a different perspective, starting from the individual perspective and measuring first happiness and inner peace, and then looking at the environments in which these people live. So I love that. Well, Steve, how can people learn about the work that you're doing? Do you have a website that you can share or places that they can connect? First thing I'd say is buy a copy of Peace in the Age of Chaos, and you can get that from Amazon, Google, any of the, any of the normal places you go to buy a book. Yes. The second is we have a, a website called Vision of Humanity and do that. We also have sort of training courses on positive peace. Take about four hours to do so. They're free. They're online. So people are most welcome to go in and utilize them. So that's another way you're capable of getting involved. We train the uh, IEP ambassadors. We've trained about 3,000 ambassadors so far. We bring them on at currently at the rate of about 500 to 800 a year. That's another mechanism. Then you can go out and you can talk about our work or start uh, positive peace projects in your schools or universities or wherever, or in your local community. So that's another way of doing it. Final note, just to finish, one thing I want to say, and sort of it's come through in this presentation, but I haven't said it really explicitly. Societal development's both bottom-up and top-down. A lot of people tend to try and look one way or the other. So quite often I've did talks on leadership, for example, and that's all about the bottom-down. Then you move into the spiritual groups and it's all about bottom-up, but it really functions both ways. The collective consciousness, the individuals in the society shape the way the societies form. And similarly, the structures of the society and the regulations and the way they push information down shape the consciousness of individuals as well, systemic. Wonderful example of how you are doing this in both directions and such wisdom you've shared with us today. Thank you so much for coming and being on this podcast and, and sharing your stories. And I hope those who are interested to learn more connect to the resources that you've shared. Great. Look, at love being here. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. What I love about this conversation with Steve is how he's looking at measuring and creating peace by shifting systems and how he's using both a top-down and bottom-up approach to create change. To view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast.